You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City. My name is Keith. I'm one of the members here at New City, and I have the opportunity to share from the Word of God this morning with you. So just want to say thanks to Nick for the opportunity and for you all for being here today. It's a blessing to come together to worship the Lord with brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we are continuing our series on 1 Peter, the theme being exiles. Uh, last week, Nick preached a great sermon on loving your enemies. And if you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast, watch the YouTube video, because everything he said is excellent, and everything he said is absolutely important to understand this text. So what we're going into today, we're looking at the next section of 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 22. What we're going to see is we just heard about how we are to love our enemies, and now we're going to see what happens when they don't love us back. Because what we're looking at today, the title of my sermon is Suffering as Exiles. Now, when we think about suffering, this text is primarily about suffering for the Christian faith. This text is not about health issues. This text is not about uh, um, accidents as health. It's not about, you know, it's about suffering as a Christian for being a Christian. And that's how we're going to look at it today. Um, most of the, this text refers to suffering as verbal suffering. It's a, it's a rebuke, it's a slander, it's a condemnation by neighbors, by family members, by friends that we're looking at today. Um, other texts in the scripture talk about when you are being abused physically, it's okay to get out of there. So we're not saying, what I'm not saying here today as we look at being at suffering for Christ is that you should just stay there if you're in danger of your life. We're talking primarily about verbal and social pressure. I just want to say that because suffering for Christ can happen in relationships that make it hard to get away. But please come and talk to somebody at the church if you need help and you're in a situation you feel unsafe. Just wanted to say that because it's important we remember that. Now, suffering for the gospel is something we hear about. If you're familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, it's a group that puts out magazines, sends out emails that talks about Christians in the world today who are suffering and dying for their faith. They're being persecuted. They're being driven out of their homes. They're being afflicted by their families. And they're being killed by governments because they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and King above all other things. This is a real situation. Your, bro your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters alive today still, still deal with, my friends. And it's not just an issue over there or a third world country issue. Sometimes people in America aren't killed for their faith, but their faith costs them suffering. Let me give you a short example. A young man in my church six years ago, five years ago, named Young, comes to our village, our small group, and is basically in tears. And he, we're saying, what's going on? He goes, I told my, my parents I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, 
and they basically said they want nothing to do with me. That I'm anathema. I'm following Jesus, and that means I'm not following the plan they had for my life. And therefore, I have nothing to do with them anymore. And that suffering, my friends, was real. It was painful. This brother in Christ was heartbroken that his family had basically disowned him because he professed Jesus. And this was the reality he lived in. Now, God, by his grace, worked in his parents' hearts and his family's hearts, and he has a relationship with them now, but it's been changed because of his profession in following Jesus. But that is a real cost that happened to somebody who went to U of I and graduated here, who was a part of a number of people's lives who are in this room today. So that suffering that we are talking about today is not just out there with those people, but it's people, it will impact people here in our lives. So this is a word not just for the first, Christian, uh, first century church, but for us today. Now, the reality is Jesus says that we're to take up our cross and follow him. He does say that if he suffered, we will suffer. So there will be a cost of following Jesus, and it's worth it. And Peter gives us this text so that when suffering comes, we would suffer well for our faith in Jesus. So all of this text is founded upon a Christian faith. It is suffering for the gospel of Jesus. So we have to come to define what is the gospel of Jesus that we're suffering for. Because we're not suffering for a political party. We're suffering because in the gospel we're committed to something greater than any political party or any political agenda or any social agenda. The gospel says this, that when mankind, from Adam and Eve's time on, when they sinned against God by eating the fruit that he told them not to eat, sin has reigned in this world and it has separated us from God. It has broken our relationship from him. Yet God, in his wisdom and love, made a way for us to be reconciled. He worked through the patriarchs of the Old Testament. He worked through the people of Israel. He worked through a million different ways. His hands were active. If you read the Old Testament, you see this looking for a deliverer, looking for the one who would crush the head of the serpent looking for the, the Messiah from the line of David. And at the right time, God himself becomes man. Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man. God the Son becomes man. He's born of virgin birth. He lives a perfect life without sin, teaching, healing, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God that is coming. He is betrayed. He is he is falsely accused, he is falsely tried, he is handed over the Romans. He is tortured, he is executed, he dies, and in three days he rises again in glory. And the gospel communicates, what Jesus communicated and what the gospel writers communicate is that by having put, placing our faith in Jesus, in his work on the cross, in which he paid the penalty of bloodshed, for our sins, and he paid the penalty to the wrath of God being poured out upon him for our sins. By having faith in his work on the cross, we may be reconciled to God, made right with him through that work, and made his children. That 
gospel calls us not only to believe it and receive it, but to follow Jesus, to follow him as our Messiah, as our King, as our Lord, to follow him as our as the obligation of our hearts that he is ultimate and he is first and he is above every king, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the first century, Caesar was king. And in the first century, in Paul's time, Caesar was worshipped as a god. And Christians said, no, we will be good citizens, but our, our allegiance is in heaven. Our king is Jesus. And they suffered for it. But the gospel calls us today to also be willing to suffer for our allegiance with Jesus above all other things. So when suffering comes, it comes because of the gospel. It becomes because of obedience to the gospel and because of proclaiming the gospel. But what we're going to see today, our main point here, is in suffering for the gospel as exiles. Let me rephrase that. In suffering, do good to be blessed and be a blessing. We're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at suffering as exiles has an attitude. Suffering as, as exiles has a purpose. And suffering as exiles bears fruit. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we're going to jump in. Um, the text today is 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. If you could stand for the reading of the word. Thank you. Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, should, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah." when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. So what we see here in verses 13 through 17 is suffering as exiles has an attitude. It has a heart. Now, as I just talked, as I spoke earlier, the context here is loving your enemies. And now he follows it up immediately with suffering because the reality is your enemies may not love you back. When we suffer, the way we suffer matters. As we are persecuted, as the church is persecuted for Jesus, for the gospel's sake, our heart attitude, the way we respond, says a lot about our hope. Now this text is referring to suffering for the cause of Jesus, for the holding to the gospel. Sometimes we can be quick to say, I'm suffering persecution, and really we're being, we're being treated poorly because we're jerks. 
That's not what this text is talking about. There's plenty of times where we can make tertiary issues primary. And I want to make it clear, this text is talking about suffering because of our following Jesus and our proclamation of Him. Not because of any political persuasion or social agenda, but because of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. So how do we act when we suffer? That's what this text looks at. You know, it first begins in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good? So there's a zealousness to do good. There is a um, living in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. So there's this reality that if suffering comes, God blesses that suffering. He blesses us in that suffering. Peter goes on to say, have no fear nor be troubled. When suffering, have no fear. That's hard. Nor be troubled. He goes on and says, But honor, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, is set apart. And he goes on, And have a, and give, be ready to make a defense for anyone who gives a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. These are words that he gives here that aren't, here's how you act, although in part they are, but there's here's how your attitude is to be. Here's how your heart is to be in suffering. And in the end, when we suffer for the gospel, he says, be ready to give a reason. What are people going to ask about? What is driving this attitude? The reason for the hope that is in you. The reality is that our attitudes are driven by what we hope in. And the hope he says here is honoring Christ the Lord is holy. Our hope being in Jesus, that drives our attitudes. This is hard, guys. The reality is when we suffer, when we are persecuted, when we are, are hated or derided or kicked out of our families or told not to come home, or when we're suffering from persecution, people worldwide, this is not a natural thing. You know, we want to feel sorry for ourselves if somebody says they don't like our sports team. Man, if somebody condemns the gospel, something we hold to strongly, that we follow and obey, we want to despair. But Peter says, no, don't despair. Hold that hope in your heart of Jesus in such a way that it fuels your life so when you suffer, you suffer differently than everyone else in the world around you. The reality is, if we live in the world, the, with the world we live in in America today, we probably will not be thrown out of communities or stoned. We may get deplatformed, demonetized, or kicked off Facebook for proclaiming truths from the Bible. That may happen. That may be a reality we face. But we are not being suffering the same way they are. But however we suffer, the call here is to suffer in such a way that it reflects a certain attitude and a certain hope. Now, what is that attitude and hope? The reality is, when Peter thinks about suffering well, when Peter defines these terms here that he says in 13 through 17, he's reflecting upon the suffering Jesus did. When Peter was rejecting Jesus, when being confronted with, are you a follower of Jesus? He says, no, I don't know him. Jesus is suffering uh, arrest and trial and execution. 
And as Peter is denying him, the very man who denied him is saying, Jesus is the example we have of suffering well. He is the one who, though he had the right to call down legions of angels to defend him, suffered unjustly in order to bring us to God. So when we suffer with hope, with gentleness and respect, with a good conscience, not in fear or being troubled, when our hearts in suffering so cling to Jesus, we suffer differently. We embody Jesus to the world around us. This sounds really hard, right? Can we be honest? Like, this sounds impossible. When I, when I suffer, man, I stub my toe. I, I'm just like, oh, woe is me, the world's over, right? I want to have a pity party. If I don't get the right meal or my meal comes poorly, I want to curse somebody out, you know? Um, let's, be, let's be real here. This is hard. Where does this come from? Where does this attitude come from? Well, guys, how is this attitude fueled? Verse 12. Look up with me to verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says we can suffer this way, because when we suffer, the Lord sees and knows. He hears our prayer. He knows what the evil are doing to us, and he knows that the righteous are suffering. Therefore, we can suffer differently, because he knows, he sees, he hears he loves us. Because of that, because the Lord is with us, we can suffer differently. Because the Lord suffered before us, we can suffer as he did. What does this look like? We have, I have a few questions for us to think through in our own hearts in this. So first, first question here. Um, do you live in such a way that your faith is proclaimed clearly? The reality is sometimes we don't suffer for our faith because um, we don't proclaim our faith. And guys, let me be clear here. I'll own this. I'll, let me own this. This condemns me in a lot of ways. And I need to proclaim the gospel to myself that there's forgiveness because so often I want to be the nice guy. I want to be the nice guy. You know, I'm, a, I'm a nice Christian guy and I work hard and I'm friendly to all my coworkers. But am I living in such a way that my faith is being proclaimed clearly? I may talk about church. I may even talk about preaching with my coworkers. But do I talk about their need for Jesus Christ? The answer is no. Oftentimes I take the easy way out. And instead of being like, here's what the gospel says. How do you, you need to respond to this? I take the easy way out. I talk about church. I talk about great things New City is doing. But I don't say... The gospel is objectively true and that the gospel says Jesus is the only way to God. And when you say those things, that's the things you're going to suffer for. If you say, hey, Jesus is the way to God, no one minds there being many ways to God. But when you say the gospel says that Jesus is the only way to God, that you are separated because of your sin, and that unless you repent and believe, you will spend eternity in suffering in hell, separated from God because of your unbelief, that's very Unfriendly, and that causes people to respond. And guys, do you, do I, live in such a way that our faith is proclaimed clearly? Yes, we want to do it with gentleness and respect. We don't need to be obnoxious or a jerk. 
but do we live in such a way that our faith is lived out and proclaimed that others may know it? Second, how do you respond in suffering for your faith? If this has happened to you, and a number of people here have, I'm sure, had poor responses to their faith in Christ. How do you suffer? Is it an opportunity to rejoice that God has counted you worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ? Is it something you, you run away from or flee? Is it something that you gets you embittered toward God? How do you respond? What does that say? So number three ties in right to how you respond is what does your attitude and suffering tell you about your heart? Here's the thing. Where our, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. What we hope in will drive our lives. So when we suffer for our faith, what does that tell us? What is our attitude? Tell us about that suffering and about our faith and our hearts. And the fourth question, how does your response to suffering need to change? Now, the reality is this isn't about bootstrapping yourself. It isn't about just memorizing this text and trying to do better. I want to make it clear. The response to our suffering shows our hearts. Our hearts are changed as we hold to, the, hold to the gospel, as we pray to the Lord to do a work in our hearts, and as we seek Him earnestly. It's not something we can just say, okay, I'm going to do the four-step uh, process of heart change. That's not it at all. But when we see that there's an issue in our hearts, like I shared earlier, when I see that I'm fearful to proclaim boldly the gospel, I need, we need to confess that to God, ask forgiveness, ask for a heart to be changed, that we would live out these things, that our attitude in suffering, our attitude in, in life would change in such a way that Jesus would be honored, the gospel would be proclaimed to the glory of God and for the good of our own souls. But guys, these questions aren't a list of things you need to do. They're diagnostic questions to see our heart that we may seek after the God who sees and hears and loves us. So the first thing this text teaches us is that suffering as exiles has an attitude. But there's a second thing this text teaches us that's glorious, and that suffering as exiles has a purpose. If we look at verses 16, 15 and 16 and 18, the text says here, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Why do we suffer? One of the reasons that we suffer is that it shows our hope. When we suffer, when God brings us through suffering, the God who is sovereign and sees and hears brings us through this suffering. As Peter, and you say, okay, Keith, where do you see that? Well, I think we see that in verse 12, but we also see that in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will than for doing evil. 
if the Lord brings us through suffering for our faith in Christ, it is his action that he is doing to produce something. The suffering has a purpose. Guys, that's glorious. Oftentimes we can think when we suffer in our lives for our faith or in other ways, like it feels like there's no purpose to this suffering. But God says there is a very defined purpose for this. God is doing something in our suffering. How? Suffering shows our hope. He, Peter says here, be prepared to make a defense. To, the word defense here is the same word we get apologetics from. The idea is not apologizing for the faith, but to give a reason for the faith. And what do we do? We give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter says, when God brings you through suffering, and you suffer in such a way that shows your hope is in Jesus, be ready. Be ready always. Be prepared to give reason for the hope that is in you. Because the reality is, when we suffer for our faith, when we suffer in this world, and we do so in a way that the attitude and heart are different, the world around us is going to take notice. Because the reality is, everybody has views that they hold, religious views, whether it's Christian or any other view. But when people suffer, when they go through and they hold fast to those things, people take notice. This isn't just a fair weather thing that they're holding to when things are going well. It's when the chips are against the wall and, and all your life is falling apart that that faith becomes real to those around you. They say, that person really believes this. Now, I've not been in a situation where I've suffered for my faith like this text. I personally not. So I don't have a very easy uh, personal example. But I will tell you that Young, when he suffered that night that I talked about earlier, where his parents basically disowned him, his willingness to commit to Christ and communicate that if that's what happens, I'll follow Jesus. I'm telling you this because it still echoes in my soul. His hope he may not have had his parents asking about it, but his hope encouraged those around him and blessed them in ways that are echoed throughout eternity. So suffering shows our hope to the watching world, to the unbelieving world around us. When we suffer, unbelieving world says, why do you have this hope in Jesus and you're suffering? And we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect. Suffering shows our hope to one another, the church. And in another way, suffering shows the reality of our faith to ourselves. I don't know about you guys, the reality is, I think I prayed the sinner's prayer 48 times in the first year as a believer. Because I didn't know, like, am I saved? Am I not saved? Um, I struggled with that a lot. And when you go through times of suffering for your faith and you hold fast to Christ when you're persecuted, it shows your faith and your hope to you. It, God uses that to reveal to yourself, like, wow, Jesus is my king. He is my hope. So God can use that suffering to reveal your own heart to you. 
to jump to Paul real quick, Romans 5, he refers to how suffering produces perseverance, which produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. Suffering produces hope. Suffering gives us the opportunity to share the gospel. And in the end, God does not call us to do something that he hasn't already done for us because verse 18 talks about how Christ suffered for us. Suffering has a purpose. It has a purpose for us. It had a purpose for Christ. The text here says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that it might bring us to God. Christ the gospel I mentioned earlier is Jesus died for our sins. He lived a perfect, sinless life and died for us. Guys, right here, straight from the text, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. His suffering had a purpose. He didn't die because he offended the wrong political party. He died on the cross to redeem a people for himself. His suffering has purpose, and our suffering when we suffer for Jesus Christ has purpose. God is at work. He is proclaiming the gospel not only through our words before we suffer, but in our hearts and our actions as we suffer, and throughout the echoes of that in the lives of those around us for eternity. The reality is we go to books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we go to Voice of Martyrs, uh, online articles and websites because those very things, those very people holding fast to Christ though they suffer and die, encourage and strengthen our faith and help us to hold fast to Christ in the midst of a tumultuous life and fears and struggles. Our suffering has a purpose. It is known by God and it will be rewarded in heaven. It is not purposeless when we follow Jesus and we suffer. And there is glory in that, my friends. So I have three questions to review here. Once again, I'm going to start with one that I have to look at myself a lot. Do you live a life that makes clear that your allegiance is to Christ? It's not enough for us to be nice people. It's not enough for us to be good people. We are to be Christian people. And once again, I find it so easy to keep my mouth shut and just be a nice guy. But we're called to be proclaimers of the gospel. Not jerks, you know, to do it with gentleness and respect, to do it with kindness, to do it with love. If something offends, if the Christian is going to offend, the gospel ought to be the offense. So often we talk about our rights, and we make things like what political party you're in or your views on gun control or vaccines into ultimate issues that make people think, oh, that Christian is an anti-vaxxer, pro-gun Trump. And all of Christianity looks like that. Or that Christian is a pro-vaccine Biden fan, and all Christianity looks like that. Guys, let's not let the gospel become politicized. The gospel is far and above infinitely more important than what political views are. The gospel is the only hope 
for people who are perishing apart from Christ. And what we can't do is offend people with arguing with them and being bitter and hateful on social media to the point they're unwilling to hear us about Jesus because we've already been offensive, let's be honest, jerks on Twitter. Now, we have to live in such a way that it's clear our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ. That doesn't mean we don't stand for other issues, the sanctity of life, things like that, or even political issues, but those have to be tertiary, and we have to speak of those with gentleness and grace and kindness and love, because we can't we do not want to cause an offense that causes people to be unwilling to hear us about Christ because we're so passionate about everything but Him. So do we live a life that makes it clear that our allegiance is to Christ? And second, does the way you suffer cause others to ask a reason for the hope that you have? Now I've made this clear. This text is primarily about suffering for the gospel, for because you're persecuted for the gospel, but in so many ways, the way you suffer for other things as well impacts this. When you suffer the loss of a family friend, when you suffer the loss of a child, when you suffer the loss of friends for the gospel who reject you because you believe in Jesus and you shared the gospel with them, when you suffer Though does the way you suffer cause others to ask a reason for the hope that you have? It might not be the people who reject you. It just may be the people around you that say, how? Pardon me. Excuse me. It may be the people around you that say, how are you getting through this? How are you not in tears? How are you not devastated by this loss of your friend for decades and when you say, my hope is in Jesus, my hope is in a sovereign God who loves me and died for me, and if he's bringing me to this, he'll bring me through this, you're going to proclaim the gospel to these people. Because the reality is, the purpose oftentimes that God has for our suffering is many, but one of the major purposes is to proclaim the good news. And the third question, are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? This is tough. Peter calls the people to be always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. Anytime you're asked for why you have this hope in Jesus, be prepared. The, re the reality is, well, especially in our context, we live in Champaign-Urbana. We live in a college community. We have a lot of very highly intellectual people, and it can be intimidating to talk to somebody, you're like, my professor in philosophy is asking me why I'm hoping differently. And the reality is, we can think that we shouldn't speak up until we have all the answers. This was my biggest struggle in college, guys, is I feared I couldn't speak, I couldn't be ready to give an answer for my hope until I had all the answers. Guys, let me tell you, I read dozens of books on apologetics, and I had hundreds of conversations with friends, and I still don't have all the answers. But the answer that we are to give is the gospel. There's going to be more questions asked, and it's good to have answers for apologetics. It's a good thing. 
But in reality, when people ask us a reason for the hope that is in us, we point them to Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, that our hope and faith are placed in him for the forgiveness of sins and to be made a child of God. That's what we point to. The great news about apologetics is you got a church full of intelligent people, and if people have honest questions, you can talk to the church and say, hey guys, my friend is asking me about uh, creation or uh, quantum mechanics or any number of things, and we can find somebody in the church who's thought about it, read about it, and can give feedback, guys. That's the blessing of having a body is we don't have to carry all the answers ourselves. The main answer we want to proclaim is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we've seen how suffering as exiles has an attitude, a heart. We've seen how it has a purpose. But then we want to look at the final, the final text here, verses 18 through 22. Suffering as exiles bears fruit. Now let me read it real quick. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, they may bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly uh, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter gives us two examples. He's just talked about like the attitude, the hard attitude of suffering and the purpose of suffering. But now he gives us two examples here of two examples here of suffering bearing fruit that is suffering having a purpose that accomplishes something. Jesus suffered and died to redeem a people and for 2,000 years the church has spread across the globe proclaiming his message. That's Jesus suffering produced much fruit. It had a purpose and it accomplished something that is still echoing through eternity. It will be worshipped in heaven forever for what Jesus accomplished for us. And rightly so. It's a glorious truth. So Peter gives the example here of Jesus suffering to bear fruit, to save souls. And then he gives this example of Noah and talks about how Noah, at Noah's life, he talks about how Jesus, uh, Jesus was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's a lot here, guys. We don't have the time. I could have to talk for an hour and I have to do a lot more study to be able to explain this last chunk of this text. Out of respect for everyone's time, um, I'm going to give a brief summary to the question here about baptism and the question here about Noah. But I will refer everyone to the ESV Study Bible, and I'll be happy to give them access to a paper copy to be able to read about this, because there's great ways of viewing this that make a lot of sense. Um, but this is a hard text. It's hard to interpret and translate for translators as well. So here is how um, I'm going to explain how I understand this to be as briefly as I can, as clearly as I can. So when it says Christ died but was alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. He gives this example of Noah, and he says that Christ proclaimed through Noah. Well, did Jesus go back into Noah's day? No, I don't think so. Uh, the Spirit of Christ is another fra uh, phrase that's used for the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in 2 Peter, talks about Noah as a herald of righteousness. So what appears to be happening here is Peter is saying that Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, proclaimed to Noah, to the people of Noah's day, who are now spirits in prison, who did not obey formerly when Noah proclaimed. So he's saying Christ was proclaiming through Noah, through the Spirit of God, to the people at Noah's time. Noah, if you're familiar with the story of Noah, he spends a lot of time building the ark. And Peter's like, Noah's proclaiming God's judgment and a need to repent during this time. Faithfully, throughout the building of the ark, as Noah builds deliverance from God's wrath in a flood that's coming, as the people around him see this giant ark being built and reject him, as they see the animals coming to the ark by the power of God and coming into the ark and reject him, as he proclaims faithfully, in the end, eight people are delivered in the ark. Noah and his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. That's it. Noah faithfully proclaims, faithfully served. God works wonders, and God himself is the one who closes the door of the ark in the end, not Noah. Yet only eight people were delivered. So what's God, what is Peter doing here? He's saying Jesus' suffering produced much fruit, an abundance of fruit. Noah's suffering produced very few converts. Very few believers who followed him into the ark and were delivered. He's giving us this example of abundance and suffering and in minuscule fruit and suffering. At least in people who are heard, and yet all of us descend from the sons of Noah. So, what we see here is that suffering as exiles bear fruit, bears fruit, though it may be much fruit or little apparent fruit. It does bear fruit. There is an intention here. If we look at other Old Testament resources, if you think of the prophet Jeremiah, he had a scribe who appears to be the only person other than him then believed him. Jeremiah, the lump, who wrote Lamentations, the weeping prophet, who preached to the people of repentance and faith or judgment would come, and judgment came, and Jerusalem was destroyed. This young man proclaims the good news, proclaims repentance and faith, proclaims uh, judgment for, dis for disbelief and disobedience, is never believed by much more other than his scribe. And yet, one of the most encouraging books to read when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're trying to proclaim truth to people and they don't believe is Jeremiah. When you're struggling with despair is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is such a blessing to the church today, even though the fruitfulness of his original ministry seemed very, very small at the time. So I say this because suffering bears fruit. It bears fruit at the time, 
And suffering bears fruit throughout eternity as those as those as God's work echoes forth in the hearts and lives of the people who hear about it. Suffering has a purpose. Okay, we see that. And we see that Peter here is tying the story of Noah being brought safely through water and then says baptism. Holy cow, how does baptism tie into bearing fruit? Well, guys, when people come to Christ in repentance and faith because of our suffering and our proclamation, we baptize them. And I just, as a, as a Baptist shout out, I want to point out, he talks about how baptism saves you not by washing of, of dirt. Well, you don't get that from sprinkling, guys. You get that from getting dunked. Washing of dirt happens when you take a bath. You get under the water to get washed. So, as a full immersion Baptist, got to raise the flag there. Um, but as a, as a Baptist, this is tough first, right? Baptism saves you? How do we deal with this? I'm going to give you a very brief rundown. I, refer, I would recommend the ESV Study Bible. It has some great resources on this text. But to sum up what they say for sake of time, Baptism, which, which corresponds to going through the waters of judgment, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing out that for Peter in first century church, baptism was absolutely tied to, to faith in Christ. If you were a Christian, you were baptized, Period. He's saying baptism doesn't save you by washing you clean. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience because of Jesus. Baptism, he says, saves you. But the reality is a reflection of the salvation that's done in Jesus. Through faith, the people are saved. They are then baptized. And the church, in baptizing a believer, affirms their salvation. Baptism is supposed to say that you can look back and say, I profess faith in Christ. The church affirmed that and I'm a part of the body of Christ. So baptism doesn't save us in that it redeems us. Jesus alone redeems us. But baptism points to our salvation in Christ and how that is recognized and affirmed by the body of Christ, the church, that we are in Christ. So baptism is the result of suffering as exiles that bears fruit. That fruit leads to changed lives, that leads to baptisms, that leads to souls transformed to the glory of God and lives, trans lives lived out for Jesus. Think about Saul. Saul who was at Stephen's stoning. Saul who is confronted by God on the Emmaus Road. Saul who uh, repents and is baptized and goes forth and proclaims the good news, suffering for the sake of the gospel and seeing many souls come to Christ. In our suffering, we can bear fruit because it shows Jesus is our hope, because it gives us opportunities to proclaim that hope, and because as we do so, it honors Christ and holds him up as holy to the world around us. I have three last questions to, to reflect upon as we come to an end here. First question. Next, uh, first question, there we go. Are you striving to live a fruitful life? Here's the thing. 
It's like Paul says, I have worked hard, yet it is God who worked in me. Like the fruitfulness that comes is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, and yet we're called to strive for it. The reality is we will not have a fruitful life if we never share the gospel, if we barely get involved in discipleship relationships, and we don't invest in anybody. If we're silent about, uh, silent about Jesus and we just try to live an okay life that's... Uh, uh, if we just try to live a good, like a good person, we're not going to bear much fruit. If we try to live boldly for Jesus, if we try to live in such a way to invest in other souls, if we try to live in such a way to prayerfully, wisely, graciously engage people with the gospel, God honors that. God works through that. As, as weakly and as poorly, and as, um, f- as fallen, as Failure prone as we may feel, God uses the weak to shame the strong, which means God can use your stuttering, incoherent gospel message to your friend over coffee at over 30 seconds as you, in Starbucks to save a soul. Guys, I came to Christ through Left Behind, the books. I came to Christ through a fiction book that had a gospel. I had friends talk to me about Jesus in ways that made no coherent sense, but looking back pointed me to him. The reality is when God chooses to save us, he doesn't need us to have an eloquent speaker speaking to us to argue with us. He works through his spirit, through everyday simple people like you, like me, to save and redeem a people for himself. So if we strive to live fruitful lives as faithful as we can in small ways, God will honor that immensely. And we should honor that when people do that as well. Second question, are you trusting God for the fruitfulness? This can be hard because we can get excited about evangelism and excited about discipleship, and we can pour our heart and soul into others. And we can see them disciplined by the church. We can see somebody you've spent years investing in, reading the Bible with and praying with, disciplined for the rejection of of the very words that we hold as God-breathed and inspired. And that can be hard. And we can invest in people time and time and time again. And if you live in this town and you've been here for a while, you're going to invest in hundreds of people and they're going to leave you again and again and again because we're a transitory town. But in the end, if we're thinking about, if we're, if we're trusting in God for the fruitfulness, we can trust that He is at work in the gospel being proclaimed, in the seeds that are planted, and He will bring to fruition what He chooses to in His time. That it's not us doing everything right to get people to have the right responses. It is God at work in their hearts and lives. God, this is, guys, this is freeing. This is freeing. We don't have to have all the answers and we don't have to make this person a perfect disciple because we can't. We can be faithful in small things as we engage people with Jesus and help them grow and we can trust him and he is faithful, gloriously faithful. And the third question, are you willing to suffer to see many come to know and profess the Savior to know the Savior you profess and love. The reality is, if we live a life that proclaims Jesus more and more, we may, God may bring us through suffering for our faith and proclamation of Jesus, 
But are we willing to suffer, to see God work for many to come to know Jesus? The reality is our fruitfulness may be great. And you think about Billy Graham, who proclaimed the gospel and many have come to faith. And tens of thousands are are following Jesus because of his example in the U.S. And you think about people, pastors that you, you know, pastors you grew up with, who may have seen very little fruit over 20, 30, 40 years of ministry. Yet whether it is many, like Jesus' death to save us, or whether it is few, like Noah's proclaiming to deliver eight, God is honored and glorified, and he will work mightily in those people. He is the one who produces fruit. He calls us to walk in faith. As we do that, are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to walk in obedience to proclaim the good news, though we may suffer for others to know and hope in him? Guys, I come to this like everyone else here, in progress. I don't have this all figured out. I struggle so hard with these questions as I ask them not to feel like a hypocrite because I, I want to be more bold. And I want to encourage you as well. It doesn't take a super giant of the faith to proclaim Jesus and live for him out of love. It just takes regular, everyday people. Because the reality is the Bible we have today, yes, Paul and Peter wrote a lot of it, as did others. But the gospel that came to us came through hundreds of generations of people just like you and just like me who raised their children in the Lord who proclaimed Jesus to one another and their neighbors, who loved the sick and the poor, who cared for the widow and the orphan, and in their everyday faithfulness, they proclaimed Jesus, and God has used that to take the gospel around this world. So let's be a part of that. Let's, be, let's hold to the everyday faithfulness of following Jesus. With our, and when suffering comes because of that, let's have an attitude that's different than the world around us. Let's see and be reminded of the purpose that God has for that. And let us trust him with the fruitfulness that he will bring. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us and and your plan to redeem a people for yourself. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do call us to suffer, but you suffered before us to show us the way. You call us to follow you. That every student will become like their master. And if you have suffered, we will suffer. So Lord, we, we want to be bold with the faith. Not to pursue suffering for the sake of suffering, but to pursue gospel proclamation for the sake of souls that need to know and love you. Father, I pray that as we come to this time of response that you would be at work in each of our hearts, Lord, in whatever way that would be. And in the end, each of us would be encouraged and blessed and drawn near to you in your word, in prayer and worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.